no matter how bad a film gets, it's generally safe to assume that the people who worked on it were interested in doing a good job. But there are exceptions to this. Films where nobody involved gave a shit about how it turned out, and it's really obvious just looking at every frame of it. And The Killer Shrews from 1959 is a... It could function as a case study in this phenomenon. We have, at various points, covered movies for this show that were not made with the idea that they would turn a profit in the box office. I uh, see these films were made with the idea that they would already make money even before they were released for reasons that they were pre-sold to basic cable or streaming or home video, uh, all of which are mediums that are starved for content. And this dates back to the dawn of film in general. The earliest movies were made not so much because they were good, but because they needed something to play in the theater. And the theater was the only place in town that had air conditioning in the middle of summer. It's not something that's commented on all that much, but there are instances where it uh, doesn't really matter if people are interested in watching the thing. They just need something to fill the slot. So the Killer Shrews was there to fill the slot. They needed something for the drive through They needed something for 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon when a couple of teenagers felt like making out in the dark. So that's what we're talking about for this episode. This is the Killer Shrews. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me for this one is my sister Cheryl. This is what happens when we're unsupervised. Yes, Sylvan is unavailable because his workplace is ramping up for the season. So um, we're left for a little bit to talk about some movies that Sylvan wouldn't be interested in. And when we're left to our own devices, we talk about crap. All the schlock. Schlock on schlock. It's going to be amazing. Uh, the thing about The Killer Shrews is that I was feeling particularly lazy, and I had already recorded a podcast episode about this with Rachel. Rachel was curious about The Killer Shrews because she had one of those Target or Walmart DVDs that collect together a bunch of public domain movies and shitty remastering, and she just wanted to do this one, but uh, the audio for it was corrupted. But I have these notes sitting here. Oh, I see. <laughs> came from because you're like let's do this movie i'm like i've never heard of it sure but with rachel i watched that crappy dvd and i was like <laughs> i'm not watching that again so there was a mystery science the year 3000 episode so with charl we watched that one yeah and it was free to watch on youtube so there were no like subtitles or anything i understood like a third of this movie so i'm really excited a decent chunk of the robot jokes were them deliberately misinterpreting lines what what did they say that was a swedish accent yes we'll be getting to that that being said here's the plot recap oh I'm, boy i'm actually very curious <laughs> what movie did i just watch okay captain thorn sherman and first mate rook griswold are delivering supplies to a group on a remote island kind of an island of dr monroe situation was it just booze is that what the supplies were they were mixing a lot of drinks there the people on the island include scientist marlo Craigus. Research assistant Rodford Baines, the scientist's daughter Anne, her fiance Jerry Farrell. They were engaged? Yeah, that came up. I picked that up in the dialogue. And also their servant Mario. 
These people are reluctant to allow Sherman and Griswold to spend the night, despite an approaching hurricane. Thorne follows the group to their compound, while Griswold elects to stay with the boat. That didn't work out for him because he's the black guy in a horror movie. Well, also, he didn't stay on the boat. Yeah. During cocktails at the compound, the first of many, Thorne is made aware of life-threatening peril on the island. Marlowe has been performing well-intentioned experiments on life-saving serums, using shrews as test subjects. His purpose is to shrink humans in order to solve world hunger. A shrewd solution. No, it is not a shrewd solution, <laughs> because he has accidentally created a race of giant bloodthirsty shrews who have escaped into the wild and reproduced. His plan went a shrew, like a skew. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> Not even a third of the way through the plot recap. Are you so excited to do this with just the two of us? Nobody's holding me back. It's gonna go full ham! <laughs> the group has to barricade themselves in the compound each night to ward off the creatures. Marlowe's thinking is that the shrews will turn on each other after every other animal on the island is consumed. Thorne and Anne grow attracted to each other over the course of their cocktails. That happened? Yes. This frustrates <laughs> Jerry, despite the fact that he's long since sabotaged his relationship with Anne. Griswold comes ashore and is devoured by the shrews. Like, almost immediately, but there's this really unfortunate scene where he climbs, like, a dead tree, and then it breaks under the weight of him firing his own gun. Hmm. The shrews then surround the compound and consume the livestock. One shrew breaks a window and enters the basement. Thorn and Mario investigate the noise, but Mario is bitten and then soon dies. But not before he makes a tourniquet out of a gun. Mm. You know, the best thing in the world to make a tourniquet out of. I was very disappointed that that didn't turn into a plot. Radford finds a highly toxic venom in the shrew's saliva, a result of a failed attempt to kill the monsters with poisoned bait. Another shrew breaks into the building and bites Radford. He records his symptoms on a typewriter until the very moment he dies. Because he's a badass. Yeah. Also, I like that these monster shrews are also Komodo dragons. <laughs> The shrews begin chewing through the compound walls, so the group uses oil drums to construct an improvised armor, which Cheryl was just immediately opposed to. <laughs> like, that was the moment where that, that, that you were taken out of the film. Well, I'm sorry, because, like, the shrews were digging through the walls. They can't flip over an oil drum that, like, they're holding up with their fingers. The group then makes a break for it by duck walking towards the shoreline, and this is goofier than I'm making it out to be. It's like that scene from Pirates of the Caribbean, but like forever. It takes like 10 minutes and people keep fainting, and one of the dogs steals the lady's boot, and I don't know if that was supposed to happen. Jerry remains behind due to his claustrophobia. He watches the group escape before I the sh- I thought he was just being crazy. He had a reason? He did have a reason. Oh, good for Jerry. Yeah, he watches the group escape before the shrews close in on him. Thorn, Anne, and Marlowe swim out to the boat and then slip away. Confident that the shrews will wipe each other out, Thorn and Anne share a long kiss. And that is the end of the movie. On a boat in front of her dad for like a minute. 
<laughs> it wasn't a minute, it just felt like it, because holy shit, this is movie drag. This is a long-ass 90 minutes, even with robots making fun of it the whole way through. I was gonna say, I'm like, how long even was this movie? Because I couldn't tell. <laughs> Alright, the Killer Shrews, not Attack of the Killer Shrews, some people call it that, but that's the official title. The Killer Shrews was financed by Gordon McLennan, uh, yeah, who played Radford in the movie. He owned several radio stations and a chain of theaters in Texas. So he believed in this project? No, he did not. <laughs> okay. The Killer Shrews is an example of what is known as a regional film. These are cheaply produced independent films that were distributed to a very specific area. It was not a widespread Hollywood release, believe it or not. You don't say. The idea behind that is because he owned a bunch of theaters in Texas, and as I mentioned in the introduction, these types of places are always starved for content. Sometimes you need to throw something at like 2 in the afternoon on a Sunday because you don't want to like pay for a real movie. I mean, that makes sense. Even local theaters now, like today, definitely throw up a bunch of old ones that are cheaper. The idea is that everyone everywhere is starved for content. A German cable station needs something to throw on at 2 in the morning. That is how I got to watch a lot of classic cartoons and fun movies like these. Yeah. The Killer Shrews was produced alongside the giant Gila monster and shown as a double feature. Its budget was $125,000. Was that a lot when it came out? No, that was almost nothing. Okay. <laughs> This movie was not expensive to make, in case you couldn't tell based on the everything about it. Do you think it was one of those actors bring your own costumes and lunches? Possibly. I remember reading an interview with Sylvester Stallone where he was talking about the earliest days of his career and, you know, working on Death Race 2000. He was just like, yeah, the, the catering was just, they brought out a couple of sandwiches and we kind of had to punch each other out to get to one. <laughs> This film marked the directorial debut of Ray Kellogg. Do I know Ray Kellogg? Was that was he from that? Um, that wasn't the Ultra Humanite. What did? What was that robot gorilla movie we watched? He's not affiliated with Robot Monster. Oh. Okay. And the Ultra Humanite is a Superman villain. He's the gorilla guy. The, uh, the, the albino gorilla. Yeah. Well, I see. I got close because I'm like gorilla robot. Doesn't he have like a brain coming out of his head? Yes, he does. Yeah, he's, he gets involved with robots. Kellogg actually had a career after this film. He supervised the special effects for 20th Century Fox throughout the 1950s. Good for him. The Killer Shrews was shot at Cielo Ranch, a 100-acre estate on the shore of Lake Louisville. It was just north of Dallas and was owned by McClendon, believe it or not. I believe it! He owned property, yeah. So he just used it to make crappy movies. Uh, it is now a housing development. That's nice. That's good. People gotta live places. For the special effects of this film. <laughs> so pause person, for laughter. The person that glued the wigs onto the dogs. Got it. The close-ups of the shrews were done with, you're not gonna believe this, hand puppets. No! <laughs> Actually, I thought a couple of the hand puppets looked pretty cool. Well, when they were between the fence posts, yes, but when they were going through the holes, no, not so much. Yeah, when you can actually see them, not so much. Now, the wide shots, however, were not hand puppets. Those were um, coon hounds with, like, a couple of things glued to them. Wigs and pencils that were meant to be teeth, I think? Something like that, yes. 
You're just like, wow, they're adorable. I like the hand with its big googly eyes, and I like that the dogs kept wagging their tails because they were like, I did a good job playing dead. <laughs> there it goes, Google boys. Every scene, just good boys murdering you. The soundtrack is like, this is tense, and you're like, no, it's not. I wonder how they got the dogs to, like, swarm people. Like, I'm like, do they just, like, cover them in, like, peanut butter and tell them to just drop on the ground near the dogs? I'm not sure. I've already blown through most of my production notes. There is not much that has been preserved about this film in terms of, like... Knowledge of, like, the craft of it. Yeah, there, there isn't, like, an elaborate behind-the-scenes drama about this. There's no documentary about it that's more interesting than the film itself, like Apocalypse Now. So unrestrained speculation it is. I choose to believe in my peanut butter theory. Closely followed up with the actors spent time bonding with the dog and just played with them. So the dogs were like, yeah, yeah, it's playtime. Because <laughs> both of those are heartwarming. All right, for the cast of this, uh, there were only a handful of people who went on to do anything of note after this film happened. We have Ingrid Goode. She was the lady. Oh, I, I didn't hear many of the words that she said. She actually was Swedish. She was a Swedish beauty pageant winner. And she was drafted in this because she worked for Universal and didn't quite work out. And they were just like, well, I, I guess I should be in something. And she was in this. And it didn't lead to much afterwards. I, like, throughout the film, they're just, like, alluding to, like, hey, this woman on this random island in Texas has a Swedish accent. She's like, maybe I should explain my accent someday. And the lead character was like, no. And she was like, you're not curious at all. And he's just like, yep. And then the scene moved on, and I was like, what? <laughs> When's that going to come up? And then the movie was over. It didn't come up again. <laughs> that movie called itself out. Or she called out the movie, and nobody seemed to care. I think they were trying to do a lampshade joke, and it didn't work out because this movie's incompetent. Now, the other person was Ken Curtis, our lead. He was in Gunsmoke. I don't know what that is. It's a Western TV show. It was one of the longest-running TV shows of all time. I think The Simpsons recently beat it in terms of episode count, but it took them longer. Good for him! So he had solid work for the rest of his career. Yeah, there's that. And according to Mystery Science Theater 3000, one of those guys was on the Dukes of Hazard, but I never watched that show because I'm from Massachusetts. Yeah, all I know about the Dukes of Hazard is when I was in middle school, I think, or high school, they made a movie. Yeah, and Jessica Simpson was in it. Maybe. And, like, one of the guys from Jackass. Oh, and Willie Nelson. I think he played at Pothead because he's Willie Nelson. I was gonna say, Willie Nelson, like, it wouldn't surprise me if he was in anything that you could slide a Muppet into. <laughs> he's like the Muppets of, of people. Mm. For this, I wrote Reception and Legacy. Pause for laughter. The Killer Shrews was financially successful despite the everything about it. Uh, it costs like nothing. So yeah, I can see like four people seeing this movie and it doing well. Actually, it did better than that. It was one of the rare regional films that was successful to the point where it got national and then international distribution. Do you think people just didn't know what shrews were? Europeans watched this movie. Ironically? Because we watched movies ironically, Ryan, and it didn't hook us. <laughs> nope. McClendon bragged of quintupling his investment. Granted, it was $125,000, but still. I mean, I guess, sure. You know what? I'll give it to him. Good for you, sir. Good for you. 
You shrewd businessman. The Killer Shrews, as I already told you, was an episode in the fourth season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Most of the ribbing centered on the complete lack of conflict or momentum in the first half of the film, basically. Yeah. Like, this is 90 minutes long, and it takes 45 minutes for the Shrews to start doing stuff. Yeah, like, all you see is one poor little alive, maybe mouse, maybe shrew. And they're just, like, pet I mean, they were petting it, so, like, that was nice, I guess. But it was mostly just him being like shrews and shrew facts. And then they dunked on the dumb looking monsters and the terrible sound mixing that made everybody incomprehensible even if they didn't have an accent. What was the accent of the father? I think he was trying to be German. So a German father with a Swedish daughter get on an island with a... What was Mario supposed to be? I think he's supposed to be Mexican. Okay, because I was like, Mario's Italian. So, okay, so that's not true then. He wasn't Italian. Well, maybe, but I mean, Mario is a Latin name. That's not uncommon for a Mexican person to have that name. I know, but I just assumed that they named him after the Nintendo character. This movie came out in 1959. Before the Nintendo character. <laughs> Got it. The Nintendo character is named after this character in the Killer Shrews. <laughs> that's what it is. Yep. Oh, and um, yeah, I just stumbled across this note because I made it months ago. James Best in this film was Sheriff Roscoe B. Coltrane in The Dukes of Hazard. That is meaningless to me. Yeah, those are just sounds. I think he was the one who was chasing the Duke boys before they jumped over the thing that was named after the trees in general. What? Car? The, the car. The car is named the General Lee. Oh. And I have exhausted my knowledge of the Dukes of Hazard. Why? Okay. The film was later colorized. It is the third thing that came up when we looked this film up on YouTube. Ooh. Along with the giant Gila monster. I'm not sure if it looks any better. Probably not. I'd imagine it's like the Ted Turner's versions of like King Kong and Casablanca. All I'm thinking is it would have probably cost more money to colorize the movie than it did to make the movie. <laughs> Probably. It did seg into the public domain because not even the people who made it were like, hey, we should renew the copyright on this. This could be valuable <laughs> in the future. It's not worth the, like, 10%. And so, there are sequels. I saw that when we were looking it up. There's Return of the Killer Shrews, and I think MST3K did, a or um, Riff Tracks, I think, did Return of the Killer Shrews. Yes, Return of the Killer Shrews came out in 2012, about 54 years after the release of the original. Same characters? Several cast members of the Dukes of Hazard appeared in the film because the Dukes of Hazard is very closely tied to the Killer Shrews. Oh my. <laughs> uh. And then there was a remake of the film in 2016. This one was billed as a horror comedy with deliberately awful looking hand puppets. I was gonna say, I'm like, it's gonna be like Lamageddon, right? I'd imagine something like that. Maybe it's fun to watch, but I'm going with probably not. Most horror comedies are neither scary nor funny. It's true. There are some exceptions, but those exceptions were trying really hard to just be good comedies. Yeah, okay, that leads us to themes. You ha is it nautical? We're getting <laughs> nautical themes? Okay. I don't know any boat knot, and the only sailor that I know about is Donald Duck. So let's get into it. Wait, does Sailor Moon ever sail? No, um, it's a play on astronaut. Okay. But the theme <laughs> that I wrote down was late stage capitalism. Oh, oh okay. 
I mean, there's a lot of really basic stuff in this film that you can get into that's in a whole lot of other horror movies. You know, it's scientists playing God, wantonly tampering with nature, and that sort of thing. It came out in 59 and involves a mad scientist, so you could make allusions to Cold War paranoia, definitely. I mean, he wasn't very much a mad scientist, though, because, like, he was very thoughtful. He picked an island that they couldn't possibly swim off of. Well, yeah, I think that's also, they're kind of riffing on um, Island of Dr. Moreau, as I already intimated. You know, Moreau going to the island because he's practicing vivisection, which was incredibly controversial in the late 19th century. And now? Yes, that has not gotten less <laughs> controversial, not especially. You just want to lean into dissecting things alive is still, is still frowned upon? Yeah, there's also a couple of weird allusions to, like, widely discredited Malthusian notions of overpopulation. Um, the idea that all the shrews just breed in massive numbers to the point where they start eating each other, that kind of plays into eugenics a little bit. Well, I mean, hamsters will eat their babies sometimes. Well, there was notions that human beings would do this too. It was very popular in the mid-20th century to start theorizing about how, since humans are breeding in more and more numbers than ever before, we will eventually crowd each other out. And that still comes back, especially with climate change. That being said, we've covered Thomas Malthus on the show before, and it isn't so much the number of people in this world. We could have about 9 billion people in this world and have it be sustainable. It is the amount of resources that people consume and it is disproportionate and almost all of it is by the wealthiest one percent but anyways the bit i wrote for late stage capitalism surrounds how the killer shrews is a film that nobody asked for and nobody was especially interested in making sitting through this whole thing it was just an exercise in watching a whole group of people who do not give a fuck We've covered bad movies on the show before. We've covered Troll 2. We've covered Chopping Mall. I love Chopping Mall! Those aren't good movies, but those were made by people who are trying to make entertaining schlock. It's true. The people making The Killer Shrews do not care if you liked it or not. It was produced to fill a scheduling gap in a handful of theater chains in Texas that were owned by the film's producer. It was shot on land that he already owned. This was made by somebody who saw a way to underwrite his expenses and just sort of squeeze more blood out of assets that he already had. It's kind of like the art world where... You buy a really expensive painting, have it appraised for even more, and then donate it for a museum because that's a million dollar tax write-off. If you have enough money to buy into that scam, you can just reproduce it infinitely, and it is all technically legal. I feel like my Donald Duck theme would have been more funny. Mm. <laughs> Though the Killer Shrews was all but guaranteed to turn a profit no matter how bad it was or how poorly received the screenings were. Because this is another situation where being productive is more important than producing something that makes any kind of a difference at all. It's just one of those bullshit jobs where you are an assistant to a middle manager who just shuffles papers all day because you exist to make the other person seem more important. 
Which, you know, it's nice in theory, but people want to actually do something that is at least perceived as mattering. It'll have a toll on you if you spend all that time just pushing a boulder up a hill, or just, like, Russian gulags during the height of Stalinism would have their prisoners come out and then dig ditches and then fill the ditches in with dirt. It was seen as psychological torment because they were just doing all this work for no goddamn reason. Yeah, that sounds horrible. The illusion that I came to with the Killer Shrews was fast fashion, which we talked about in detail on Slacks, but to reprise, fast fashion depends on producing a large quantity of cheap clothing through ecologically devastating slave labor and then throwing almost all of it into a landfill by design. This benefits absolutely no one except for the handful of plutocrats who own the conglomerate that set these wheels in motion. It is not innovative, it is not efficient, but it squeezes a lot of money out of a minimal amount of investment. I actually read an article about it the other week, and people in the fashion world, like designers, hate it with a passion. They hate fast fashion. Yeah, I have read a bunch of pieces about people taking stands against it, and my cynical side is thinking that that's just a greenwashing attempt. Oh. I would love for it to not be. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't from, like, the, like, um, this is terrible for the environment and humanity kind of thing. It was, this is why we have cottagecore and why there are still bell sleeves and sleeves with holes in them. Nobody's buying these things, but because it happens so quickly, it doesn't matter. It's just going to be out there for the the next like 10-15 years. It was like the longest rant I've ever read in my entire life and I think it was accidentally hilarious but I was like oh oh people are still talking about fast fashion. <sighs> Fuck me with a rake. Anyways <laughs> the killer shrews didn't do any favors for anyone except for the theater chain owner who put up the shoestring budget. I mean, it sort of helped Mystery Science Theater 3000 a few decades later, but purely by accident. This movie is laughing at us far harder than anyone has laughed at it. I mean, that's fair. But, um, no, it, it helped that guy that got that show. Oh, yeah, Dukes of Hazard, dude. I mean, I guess it paid his rent for a couple of months, helped him do more auditions, so... Yeah, he had, a, he had headshots now, and like, a, oh, yeah, I was in a movie. Yeah, so that guy and Joel... <laughs> Got a resume out of it. But yeah, this is one of the reasons why uh, Americans can't afford to go to the hospital when they're sick, but we have 16 different brands of paper towel at the supermarket that are all owned by one company. Freedom! Donald Duck, right? <laughs> <laughs> the opportunity of Donald Duck. Donald Duck is more comprehensible than the sound mixing in this film, so hey, that connects it. I found synergy, people. <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. All right, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there something about the killer shrews that you'd like to add before we close things out? What was he talking about at the beginning? Like playing jazz, Dixie? Oh, in, in the Mystery Science Theater episode, there was a running gag where they were trying to, like, shoehorn in mentions of Dixieland jazz everywhere. That's... No, no, the, um, the guy that died first. Oh, yeah. He said that the reason that he wasn't fired for incompetence is because he could, uh, nobody, like, no machine would be able to play jazz, Dixie. Oh, oh, yeah, the way he did. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then the robots just, like, kept that going for another, like, 15, 20 minutes because nothing else in the movie was happening. Yep. I felt like we should just shoehorn that in at the end. So there you have it. Ha-cha-cha.
All right, uh, everybody, we'll, we'll, we'll go up by playing a few notes of The Entertainer. Thanks for listening to this one. We'll do something with more substance next time. This is Ryan in the editing room, just uh, pointing out that after looking things up, The Killer Shrews is 70 minutes long, not 90. I guess that plays into how things felt longer than it was, but just wanted to throw that out there so it wasn't endlessly repeated to back at me in the comments. And that's my addendum for this messy bitch of an episode.